Welcome to Kishwaukee Bible Church. Just thinking about how this continues to move closer, it feels like I'm getting into the belly of the whale. Well, we're in the middle of our series on the gospel according to Jonah, where we've been working on becoming not just more acquainted with this little book, but better readers of God's big book. And we've been doing that each week as we've been walking through um, a principle on how to be just that, better readers of the Bible. So far, we've looked at a principle called stop and listen. For those who have been here, uh, stop and listen. We looked at a principle called staying on the line. And last week, we looked at a principle called traveling instructions. And each of these, in their own ways, each of these three has oriented us and set us up to get into the details of this little book, or to get into the details of any book of the Bible. Well, today, those details become our primary occupation, as we consider a principle called asking good questions. And with that, we're going to be working through Jonah chapter 1. So if you have a Bible with you, I'd invite you to turn there again to Jonah chapter 1, and you can follow along with me as I read verses 1 to 17. Jonah chapter 1, verses 1 to 17. This is God's Word. It says, Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish, so he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God, and they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. And they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots, that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. And they said to him, Tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation and where do you come from? What is your country and of what people are you? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, what is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord. Because he had told them. Then they said to him, What shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. 
He said to them, pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry land. But they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore, they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life. And lay not on us innocent blood, for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. And the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we begin to dig into the details of this little book, I pray that we would even today, as we look at this book's beginning, I pray that we would even today begin to see what was wrong with Jonah. What was wrong and what went wrong. That we would see in these verses the contrast to those sailors. That their sensitivity to that storm and what was happening in that storm and what you were saying through that storm makes this prophet Jonah look more like a pagan than them. And if we're honest, and I pray that we would be honest, makes many of us look like pagans as well. But even as we learn how to unlock the Bible for ourselves, I pray that our sensitivity to your word and to your work in this world would grow and that rather than harden ourselves to that, we would do like those sailors did. Whatever it takes to place ourselves square in the middle of it for the ultimate honor of your son in whose name I pray. Amen. Well, who would you say was the greatest detective ever imagined? There's a lot to choose from, right? If you think back over the the pages of history, all the pages that have been written about detectives. Now, who would you say is the the greatest detective ever imagined? Maybe it's the Hardy Boys. If not her, maybe Nancy Drew, right? Feels Feels like they captured all of our hearts when we were kids. Or maybe it was the boy reporter, Tintin, and his dog, Snowy. You remember Tintin? Or maybe it's Inspector Clouseau, right? Who, although he was incredibly inept, always ended up catching the culprit, even if it was by accident. And then there's the obvious choice between Baker Street's Sherlock, or on the other hand, the Belgian Hercule Poirot. 
Who would you choose? My personal favorite, however, is Columbo. <laughs> you remember Columbo? I used to watch Columbo every Wednesday afternoon as a kid. This was my show. I have no idea why. Then when he showed up in The Princess Bride, it was even better. I remember Columbo, the unassuming homicide detective of the LAPD. I remember watching as a kid, again, every Wednesday afternoon, how he'd show up on a scene in his beat-up Peugeot, shuffling around uh, in his rumpled-up raincoat, half-smoked, half-chewed cigar in his hand. And every time you'd think to yourself, this guy, this is the best that you got, this is the best the LAPD has to offer. This apparently absent-minded, absolutely disheveled, all-around, unimpressive detective. Until that moment, he turns to the one you already know committed the crime, who you're beginning to think is about to get away with committing the crime, and says those famous four words. Just one more thing. Just one more thing. That moment he asks one more question, and you realize that in Columbo's mind, at least, the case has actually already been closed. One more question. Because it's the question, right, that unlocks the case. It's pushing the facts It's getting into the details that makes sense of what's there. It's that eye for detail that every good detective seems to enjoy, that tenacity to crack the case by asking good questions, which is what we're going to talk about today, because reading the Bible isn't much different than being a detective. It takes... takes, um, a tenacity, a commitment to to face the facts in front of you. And at its heart, an ability to, like Columbo or like Sherlock or like, like any of the others, except maybe Inspector Clouseau, to ask good questions, which is what we're going to call this principle today, asking good questions. So if you have it, take out that insert in your bulletin. Let's talk for a minute about what it means to ask good questions. What it means and why it's important. Let's start with the latter. Why is it important? And the simple answer is that asking good questions helps us understand what a passage says. And if we understand what a passage says, good questions then help us to understand what is being said through that passage in order that we might be transformed by it. In short, good questions get us into the text, which implies that bad questions are the ones that get us away from the text. So there are such things. When it comes to reading your Bible, there are such things as bad questions. 
like if you've ever seen the Abbott and Costello bit on this first chapter in Jonah. Anybody ever seen it? Costello's sitting there, standing there, telling his own version of this story. The whole time, Abbott is interrupting him with bad questions. What kind of a ship? What kind of a fish? What were the sailors throwing overboard? Which Costello's answer is apples. They were throwing apples overboard. But they're bad questions. They have nothing to do with the story. They actually distract from what the story is about. So that Costello can't even get to the punchline at the end of his six-minute routine. Well, we do the same thing with the Bible if we ask bad questions that get us away from the text rather than good questions that get us into it. So what makes a good question good? Well, to start, a good question is one that identifies an aspect of a text that is necessary for understanding what its author is saying through it. So in Jonah, asking what kind of a fish isn't a great place to start. It's not really a question the guy writing this wanted to answer. It wasn't the point. It could have been a perch, just a really big perch. That's not really the point. On the other hand, where is Tarshish is a worthwhile question to ask because when the author says that Jonah fled to Tarshish when he was told to go to Nineveh, the point is that he went five times the distance, right? Five times the distance in the other direction. You only know that if you know where Tarshish is, which means this wasn't just another moment. Just another guy was figuring out just another way to serve the Lord. He was running from that. He wasn't, he wasn't looking for, picked the wrong by accident, the wrong mission field, Right? So it's worth asking that question, where is Tarshish? But rather, right, this is a guy knowing that. This is here, a servant of God, snubbing God, ultimately spitting in God's face. Good questions identify those aspects of a text that are necessary for understanding what an author is saying through it, which means they lead us to where the author wants to take us. And if you're looking for a a, a visual of what that looks like, it's much more like sitting down to watch a movie than like playing Minecraft. Does everybody know what Minecraft is? Minecraft is a video game, quite popular. I don't know why. Minecraft is a video game where many of the Minecrafters have enjoyed most, not the story that is there. You actually could actually do this thing for a purpose, but instead of that, they play Minecraft for hours and hours and hours on end only to wander the world of Minecraft and do other things quite apart from any reason this thing was created. And yet, and yet, that's not, that's not what this is meant to be. This is much more meant to be like sitting down for a movie. You don't do that with a movie. You don't just wander into that world or, or, or take hold of the camera and shift it in whatever direction you want, right? You follow the storyteller. You follow what's in front of you. 
You don't act like you're in charge or like you know better than the one who shot the movie in the first place. Rather, you're just paying attention to what's in in the frame. That's what you do. You just pay attention to what's in the frame. And all your questions, at least with a good movie, actually end up being questions the storyteller wanted you to ask because they're leading you along to where the storyteller wants to take you. And if you're still not quite sure what a good question is, go watch The Lion King with a kid who never saw it before. Even just that opening scene, right? Do you remember it? Even just that opening scene, if they're watching it for the first time, you'll see that their first question during the opening song is when Zazu flies in and bows before Mufasa. Who's that? The Lion King? Right? And then the shot pans over, and there's a lioness sitting with a cub between her paws. Is that their baby? And all of a sudden, then Rafiki is going to the end of the rock, Pride Rock, and holding up the baby, and all of creation joins in the celebration of this son. What's happening? Right, as the crescendo of the the circle of life plays in the background. Every one of those questions is intended by the one telling the story. That's what makes a good question. It leads you to where the author, where the storyteller wants to take you. So start asking about whether Pride Rock is in Kenya or Ethiopia, which is a debate out there, if you go and look around, that is not a good question anymore. You've now stepped outside of what the storyteller is trying to tell you. Why? Because good questions lead us to where the author wants to take us, and that's not really a question, Ethiopia, Kenya, that the storyteller ever was interested in answering. Which means that that asking good questions is like being a good detective. It's about having an eye for the details, but at the same time, not making much of details an author doesn't draw attention to. It's about keeping your eyes open. And there's a little bit of a method to this because you begin by asking basic questions about the text. Then you move in to what what you might call essential questions about what, what the author is telling through, saying through the text, the meaning of the text. And, and there's some examples of each of these laid out on that sheet. So you can start with the more journalistic questions, the who, what, where, when, and why, maybe the how. What's going on, actually? What's the words doing here? But at some point, then, you've got to push past the nuts and bolts of the passage to ask what the author is saying through it. And all along, there's these three basic attitudes that you should have, especially when it comes to the Bible. First, curiosity. To hear what the author is saying in the text. To see the details and how they fit together, how they relate to one another, how they're presented, what order they come in, and what order they don't come in, and why, why. Then discernment, to hear what the author is saying through the text. 
to hear not only its meaning, but what it means then for you. And then perseverance. Because when it comes to the Bible, this is not just about the author of of Job or John or Jonah, but ultimately the author of life who stands and speaks through them. So what about Jonah? What about Jonah? What about Jonah chapter 1? Open up your Bibles again and look at these verses and ask yourself, what are some basic questions to get us into the details of this passage? What are some basic questions? The, the who, what, where, when, and why? Well, to begin, it would be worth asking, like we have in, in weeks past, who's this guy named Jonah? And where's this place named Nineveh? And last week we said that the author of Jonah probably expected his audience to already have some answers to these. That they would have known that Jonah was a prophet in the northern kingdom of Israel and that Nineveh was the capital of the Assyrian Empire that was on the rise in the east. An empire that was a growing threat to Jonah's own people. A threat that would one day take them into exile. Which is why Jonah, instead of heading east, hops on a boat and heads west. Asking basic questions begins to make sense of what's happening in the text. But, but we're then able to dig deeper to understand also what the author is saying through the text. So understanding who's Jonah and this place named Nineveh, we also begin to understand that the author of this book isn't just telling us a story about a guy who refused to listen to God, but a story about a guy who refused to listen to God when it came to loving his enemies. A guy who refused to let God be God. Because that guy didn't think his enemies were worthy of God. Not worthy of God's grace or worthy of being warned of God's wrath. And the implicit question that the author is asking through the text is whether we're the same. Whether we're the same. That's the journey from basic questions to essential questions. From understanding what the author has said in the text to understanding what the author is saying through the text. Well, what about the rest of chapter 1? What about these details? What are some of the basic questions of observation we can ask to dig into the details here? What are the questions that the author actually wants us to ask? Who's it about? Well, again, there's Jonah. And probably more important, there's God. Right? He's the first character introduced in this book. So let's not forget about him. He's the one who speaks first. There's Jonah and there's God. But in verse 5, we're also introduced to the sailors. Before that, you could actually also say that we're introduced to the storm. Obeying the will of God. Maybe the ship even, because in the language this was originally written in, 
the ship is actually on the verge of submitting to God's own commands, submitting to God's own wind. That's how it reads in the original. But in verse 5, we're, we're at least introduced to the sailors. So, so let's focus, though, for a minute on these sailors. What do we learn about them? Well, first, they're afraid, which means that it must have been some sort of storm, right? For a bunch of seasoned sailors to be frightened of. Second, we learn that they're quite ready to acknowledge that they don't have what it takes seasoned sailors though they are. They don't have what it takes to deal with the storm, which is why their initial reaction is to cry out to their gods. And why even as they're throwing things overboard, the captain goes to Jonah in verse 6 and tells him to cry out to his god because they haven't found an answer yet and they don't have that answer in and of themselves. It's interesting. Note that down. And all of this is just what the author is saying in the text. But what about digging a little deeper and asking what the author then is saying through the text? Why in this story about Jonah is the lens all of a sudden focused on these sailors? Because they're not named They're not spoken of even as individuals, apart from that fleeting reference to the captain. And there's no indication that that they're somehow going to play a bigger role in this book. This is it. This is what you get. So why do they even come into the book? Why are they even brought into the frame? I remember taking a film class in college. I've shared this before. And I didn't learn much, but I learned one thing that I took with me, that nothing makes it into the frame by accident, that a good storyteller doesn't bring in details that don't matter. And how much more with the Bible? So what purpose do these sailors play? Well, the most straightforward answer is that they serve to set up a contrast. And honestly, this turns out to be the key to understanding this whole chapter. They serve to set up a contrast because the contrast is what carries this chapter beginning to end. Let me just dig into this a little bit. See, the first thing we're told is that the word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. But that that rather than follow God, Jonah fled from God and and paid for passage on this pagan ship headed in the opposite direction from where he was supposed to be going. Because Jonah has no interest whatsoever in turning to a God who would turn to his enemies. But look at the sailors. A great wind comes and they're immediately afraid immediately aware that this came from somewhere else, that this isn't just your everyday storm, that this storm was sent. So they immediately begin crying out to to find out which God it was from, or at least which God might help them in the midst of it. As if following the wind's obedience and the ship's obedience, that it couldn't help breaking up 
if that were the will of God. The sailors are just as sensitive to what's going on. So much so that the the captain goes and finds Jonah and, and tells him to call on his God as well. And when nothing else seems to work, they feverishly try to find out who's at fault by casting lots. Now, it may not have been the most scientific way to go about this. But I think they recognized, at least, that as much as they didn't control the storm, they likewise didn't control the dice, and that whoever had sent the storm was quite capable of controlling the dice himself. And so they placed themselves in the hands of chance, or the hands of whatever God was at work behind this. And so they find out what? It's Jonah. It's Jonah. And when they find out it's Jonah... They're more afraid of his God than he is. Interesting. I'm a Hebrew, he says. I'm a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord. But it says in verse 10 that they, they were exceedingly afraid. So much so that when Jonah tells them that the only way to calm the storm is to throw him into the sea, that they're too afraid to even do that. Why? Why? Not because they're afraid of Jonah or even afraid for Jonah's sake, but because they're now so afraid of what the God who threw this storm at them might do if they kill his prophet. which is actually a much better ground, much better ground for making ethical decisions than any of the alternatives. Their primary concern now, at this point in the story, is with what this God of heaven who made the sea and dry land, with what's right in this God's eyes. Which means that even before they know the line, just to pick up on one of the phrases we used a couple weeks ago, even before they knew the line, before they knew what God wanted of them, they're much more concerned with staying on the line than Jonah. And when it's all done, and the sea finally calms The sailors are the ones in verse 16 that were told again, fear the Lord exceedingly who offer a sacrifice and make vows as Jonah sinks silently to his watery grave. This idea of making vows, this isn't just a throwaway line. Like you think to yourself, what would they vow? What would you promise a God who made heaven and earth? This is them saying, where you send, I will go. My whole life is in your hands. Do with me as you please. The entire chapter is this contrast 
between a word guy who has word issues and a bunch of pagan fishermen, pagan sailors, who are more ready to listen to Jonah's God than he is. Yet the contrast is actually set up at every point along the way. It's not something that's drawn at the end as Jonah sinks silently in the sea. It's actually pointed to at every point. See, when the sailors are crying out to their gods, the end of verse 5 says, Jonah's where? Asleep in the hull. Not because he has a clear conscience. They immediately, these sailors, they immediately know that the storm is the work of some higher power. Jonah doesn't even know it's happening. Which must have made for quite a shock when the captain shows up and starts shaking him, even repeating some of the words that God had spoken. Arise! Call out! Now not against Nineveh, but to your God. Must have been like a bad dream. But waking up and realizing you're not dreaming. But does Jonah call out? No. He won't even admit that he has a God until he's singled out by Lot. And though he says, I fear God, he's the only one not afraid enough to do something about it. Not for his own sake or for the sake of anyone around him. He didn't fear God enough to go to Nineveh. He didn't fear God enough to be concerned with the sailors who are now about to lose their own lives. The sailors care enough to try to row for shore. And when they realize that they don't have a choice, while they're praying for mercy, Jonah's standing there with his arms crossed unwilling to turn around for the sake of Nineveh and unwilling to throw himself overboard for the sake of the sailors. Do you hear that? We sometimes get this idea in our head that that Jonah, wow, Jonah, at least at the end of the day, he was willing to sacrifice himself for the sake of others, right? That's not this. There's no sacrifice in this. There's no chivalry. There's no sticking up for the sake of others. He sat there with his arms crossed. Said, you want it to stop? You throw me over. Do it yourselves. Man, I kind of get the feeling from what happens later. God was willing to send a fish to turn Jonah around that If Jonah had been willing to turn around himself, that storm would have stopped too. Never even crosses his mind. And then he stands there, the ones he has put in harm's way. Says, you want out? Murder me. Murder me. This is the peak of selfishness. 
This is the peak of self-centeredness. And it all comes out by asking good questions. Ultimately seeing the contrast that this author is drawing between a, a group of sailors who, though they didn't know him, were very, very willing to turn to God. And a guy that should have known him better and wasn't willing to turn at all. But in true Columbo fashion, there's just one more thing. There's just one more thing. Because if we're going to ask good questions, we've got to eventually ask how the author of these verses wanted his readers to respond and how we should respond to them today. And when you ask that, you find that this first chapter of Jonah isn't simply about how hard Jonah's heart might have been, but about how hard our hearts can be. Hard enough to reject God's ways. Hard enough to earn God's wrath. And hard enough to necessitate God's mercy. First, hard enough Hard enough to reject God's ways. Even if we've walked in God's ways all our lives, as I think Jonah had. Because Jonah's problem wasn't a misunderstanding of who God was or what God wanted. Or that God somehow hadn't made his plan plain enough. See, we complain a lot, I think. I, at least I do. I complain a lot that, that following God is sometimes too confusing. It's too complicated. But really, it's much more often that, that, that I just plain out refuse to follow. That's the problem. That we reject God's ways. That we do it either explicitly or functionally. that we refuse to let God be God. And even when it says in verse 3 that, that Jonah went to Tarshish with the intention of getting away from the presence of the Lord, it's not so much that he thinks he can get away from God. This isn't a theological stupidity on the part of this prophet. This is just an Old Testament way of saying that he was refusing to follow. He didn't need a lesson on omnipotence or omnipresence or any other omni-whatever. This wasn't a theological thing. The sailors, they needed a theological lesson. They didn't know who God was or what God was about or what he wanted from them. Jonah didn't have the same problem. This was rather about driving the theology he well knew from his heart the 12 inches down to his heart, his head to his heart. He needed the theology that he already knew to be seated in him. 
because it wasn't. Because Jonah's problem wasn't as much a misunderstanding of who God was or what God wanted, but a refusal to follow. And we would do well to recognize that that's our problem too. Hard enough to reject God's ways. Second, hard enough to earn God's wrath. That's that Jonah's hardness of heart was enough to earn a storm. Not only for him, but for all those around him. And it's not always a, a, a one-to-one correlation where, where we can link a particular piece of the brokenness of our world to a, a particular person's rejection of God, but we would also do well to recognize that our actions have consequences. And that left to ourselves, any one of us in our rejection of God's ways has the potential of stirring up God's wrath. Both for ourselves and for those around us. Because sin is never an individual thing. Sin is always a social thing. Which third means our hearts are hard enough to necessitate God's mercy. Because our only hope of turning from those like Jonah who would cross our arms to the very bottoms of the sea, our only hope to be then like those sailors who end up sacrificing to God is if the mercy of God will melt us through. And mercy is really our only hope of even having a chance. Because that storm could have broken that ship apart with the snap of God's fingers. He didn't have to give them anything. The same mercy that was intended to bend, not break, was the mercy that paved the pathway to salvation through the bricks of judgment. Because our hearts are hard enough, hard enough to reject God's ways, to earn God's wrath, that they ultimately necessitate that kind of mercy. A mercy that Jonah saw in the shape of a fish. A mercy that we've known in the person of Jesus. A prophet, unlike Jonah, who went willingly to his enemies. Who's joined us in many a storm, jumped into many a sinking ship. And on the cross threw himself overboard as the only innocent one among us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I um, ask as we continue to dig into this book, you'd continue to show us yourself and show us more of ourselves. I pray we would not fool ourselves into thinking that our hearts left to ourselves are any less hard than anyone else's. 
any less hard than Jonah's. And I pray that with that old hymn, you would dissolve my frozen heart by beams of love divine. This alone can warmth impart to dissolve a heart like mine. Savior, let thy love be felt. Let its power be felt by me. Then my frozen heart shall melt. Melt in love, O Lord, to thee. I pray that it would be so even here today. Amen. Thank you for joining us. For more information about our church, please visit our church's website at kishbible.org. That's K-I-S-H-Bible dot O-R-G.